Do you have kids in your life? Whether you're a parent, teacher, aunt, uncle, grandparent, babysitter, we all know that keeping kids calm and entertained can be difficult. That's why I want to introduce to you the newest show by Slumber Studios. It's called Snuggle, and it features calming stories for kids of all ages. Whether it's for bedtime, nap time, or just for fun, Snuggle offers a cozy world of imagination and adventure. You'll find original stories where we swim with mermaids, visit old toy stores, and try out magical wands. And you'll hear our modernized renditions of classic tales like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Just search Snuggle in your podcast player, and be sure to follow the show so that it's easy to find next time the kids want a good story to snuggle up with. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me, and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Chapters 4 and 5, by Jules Verne. In the previous chapters, Professor Aranax and his assistant board the Abraham Lincoln on their mission to find the sea creature. In the following chapters, we meet the Canadian harpooner, Ned Land. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 4 Ned Land Captain Farragut was a good seaman, worthy of the frigate he commanded. His vessel and he were one. He was the soul of it. On the question of the cetacean, there was no doubt in his mind, and he would not allow the existence of the animal to be disputed on board. He believed in it as certain good women believed in the Leviathan, by faith, not by reason. The monster did exist, and he had sworn to rid the seas of it. He was a kind of knight of Rhodes, a second Giudone de Gozon, going to meet the serpent which desolated the island. Either Captain Farragut would kill the narwhal, or the narwhal would kill the captain. 
there was no third course. The officers on board shared the opinion of their chief. They were ever chatting, discussing, and calculating the various chances of meeting, watching narrowly the vast surface of the ocean. More than one took up his quarters voluntarily in the cross trees, who would have cursed such a birth under any other circumstances, as long as the sun described its daily course. The rigging was crowded with sailors, whose feet were burnt to such an extent with the heat of the deck as to render it unbearable. Still, the Abraham Lincoln had not yet breasted the suspected waters on the Pacific. As to the ship's company, they desired nothing better than to meet the unicorn, to harpoon it hoist it on board, and dispatch it. They watched the sea with eager attention. Besides, Captain Farragut had spoken of a certain sum of two thousand dollars set apart for whoever should first sight the monster, were he cabin boy, common seaman, or officer. I leave you to judge how eyes were used on board the Abraham Lincoln. For my own part, I was not behind the others, and left to no one my share of daily observations. The frigate might have been called the Argus for a hundred reasons. Only one amongst us, Concier, seemed to protest by his indifference against the question which so interested us all, and seemed to be out of keeping with the general enthusiasm on board. I have said that Captain Farragut had carefully provided his ship with every apparatus for catching the gigantic cetacean. No whaler had ever been better armed. We possessed every known engine, from the harpoon thrown by the hand to the barbed arrows of the blunderbuss and the explosive balls of the duck gun. On the forecastle lay the perfection of a breech-loading gun, very thick at the breech and very narrow in the bore, the model of which had been in the exhibition of 1867. This precious weapon of American origin could throw with ease a conical projectile of nine pounds to a mean distance of ten miles. Thus, the Abraham Lincoln wanted for no means of destruction. And, what was better still, she had on board Ned Land, the Prince of Harpooners. Ned Land was a Canadian, with an uncommon quickness of hand, and who knew no equal in his dangerous occupation. Skill, coolness, audacity, and cunning 
he possessed in a superior degree. And it must be a cunning whale, or a singularly cute cachalot, to escape the stroke of his harpoon. Ned Land was about forty years of age. He was a tall man, more than six feet high, strongly built, grave and taciturn, occasionally violent, and very passionate when contradicted. His person attracted attention, but above all the boldness of his look, which gave a singular expression to his face. Who calls himself Canadian, calls himself French, and, little communicative as Ted Land was, I must admit that he took a certain liking for me. My nationality drew him to me, no doubt. It was an opportunity for him to talk, and for me to hear that old language of Rabelais, which is still in use in some Canadian provinces. The Harpooner's family was originally from Quebec, and was already a tribe of hardy fishermen when this town belonged to France. Little by little, Ned Land acquired a taste for chatting, and I loved to hear the recital of his adventures in the Polar Sea. He related his fishing and his combats with natural poetry of expression. His recital took the form of an epic poem, and I seemed to be listening to a Canadian Homer singing the Iliad of the regions of the North. I am portraying this hardy companion as I really knew him. We are old friends now, united in that unchangeable friendship which is born and cemented amidst extreme dangers. Ah, brave Ned. I ask no more than to live a hundred years longer, that I may have more time to dwell the longer on the memory. Now, what was Ned Land's opinion upon the question of the marine monster? I must admit that he did not believe in the unicorn, and was the only one on board who did not share that universal conviction. He even avoided the subject, which I one day thought it my duty to press upon him. One magnificent evening, the 30th of July, that is to say, three weeks after our departure, the frigate was abreast of Cape Blanc thirty miles to the leeward of the coast of Patagonia. We had crossed the Tropic of Capricorn, and the Straits of the Magellan opened less than seven hundred miles to the south. Before eight days were over, the Abraham Lincoln would be ploughing the waters of the Pacific. Seated on the poop, 
Ned Land and I were chatting of one thing and another as we looked at this mysterious sea, whose great depths had up to this time been inaccessible to the eye of man. I naturally led up the conversation to the giant unicorn and examined the various chances of success or failure of the expedition. But, seeing that Ned Land let me speak without saying too much himself, I pressed him more closely. Well, Ned, said I, is it possible that you are not convinced of the existence of this cetacean that we are following? Have you any particular reason for being so incredulous? The harpooner looked at me fixedly for some moments before answering, struck his broad forehead with his hand, a habit of his, as if to collect himself, and said at last, Perhaps I have, Mr. Aranax. But Ned, you, a whaler by profession, familiarized with all the great marine mammalia, you, whose imagination might easily accept the hypothesis of enormous cetaceans, you ought to be the last to doubt under such circumstances. That is just what deceives you, Professor replied Ned. That the vulgar should believe in extraordinary comets traversing space and in the existence of antediluvian monsters in the heart of the globe may well be, but neither astronomer nor geologist believes in such chimeras. As a whaler, I have found many a cetacean, harpooned a great number, and killed several. But, however strong or well-armed they may have been, neither their tails nor their weapons would have been able even to scratch the iron plates of a steamer. But Ned, they tell of ships which the teeth of the narwhal have pierced through and through. Wooden ships, that is possible replied the Canadian. But I have never seen it done, and, until further proof, I deny that whales, cetaceans, or sea unicorns could ever produce the effect you describe. Well, I respect it with a conviction resting on the logic of facts. I believe in the existence of a mammal, powerfully organized, belonging to the branch of vertebrata, like the whales, the cachalots, or the dolphins, and furnished with a horn of defense of great penetrating power. Hmm, said the harpooner, shaking his head with the air of a man who would not be convinced. Notice one thing, my worthy Canadian, I resumed. 
If such an animal is in existence, it inhabits the depths of the ocean. If it frequents the strata lying miles below the surface of the water, it must necessarily possess an organization the strength of which would defy all comparison. And why this powerful organization? demanded Ned. Because it requires incalculable strength to keep oneself in these strata and resist their pressure. Listen to me. Let us admit that the pressure of the atmosphere is presented by the weight of a column of water thirty-two feet high. In reality, the column of water would be shorter, as we are speaking of the sea water, the density of which is greater than that of fresh water. Very well. When you dive, Ned, as many times thirty-two feet of water as there are above you, so many times does your body bear a pressure equal to that of the atmosphere. That is to say, fifteen pounds for each square inch of its surface. It follows, then, that at three hundred and twenty feet, this pressure, that of ten atmospheres, of a hundred atmospheres at thirty-two hundred feet, and of a thousand atmospheres at thirty-two thousand feet, that is, about six miles, which is equivalent to saying that if you could attain this depth in the ocean, each square three-eighths of an inch of the surface of your body would bear a pressure of fifty-six hundred pounds. Ah, my brave Ned, do you know how many square inches you carry on the surface of your body? I have no idea, Mr. Aranax. About sixty-five hundred, and, as in reality, the atmospheric pressure is about fifteen pounds to the square inch. Your sixty-five hundred square inches bear at this moment a pressure of ninety-seven thousand five hundred pounds. Without my perceiving it. Without your perceiving it. And if you are not crushed by such a pressure, it is because the air penetrates the interior of your body with equal pressure. Hence, perfect equilibrium between the interior and exterior pressure, which thus neutralize each other, and which allows you to bear it without inconvenience. But in the water, it is another thing. Yes, I understand, replied Ned, becoming more retentive, because the water surrounds me, but does not penetrate me. Precisely, Ned, so that at thirty-two feet beneath the surface of the sea, you would undergo a pressure of ninety-seven thousand five hundred pounds. At three hundred and twenty feet, ten times that pressure. At thirty-two hundred feet, a hundred times that pressure. Lastly, 
at thirty-two thousand feet. A thousand times that pressure would be ninety-seven million five hundred thousand pounds. That is to say, you would be flattened as if you had been drawn from the plates of a hydraulic machine. The devil, exclaimed Ned. Very well, my worthy harpooner. If some vertebrate, several hundred yards long and large in proportion, can maintain itself in such depths, of those whose surface it represented by millions of square inches, that is by tens of millions of pounds, we must estimate the pressure they undergo. Consider then what must be the resistance of their bony structure and the strength of their organization to withstand such pressure. Why? exclaimed Ned Land. They must be made of iron plates eight inches thick, like the armored frigates. As you say, Ned, and think what destruction such a mass would cause if hurled with the speed of an express train against the hull of a vessel. Yes, certainly, perhaps, replied the Canadian, shaken by these figures, but not yet willing to give in. Well, have I convinced you? You have convinced me of one thing, sir, which is that, if such animals do exist at the bottom of the sea, they must necessarily be as strong as you say. But if they do not exist, mine obstinate harpooner, I'll explain the accident to the Scotia. Chapter 5 At the Venture The voyage of the Abraham Lincoln was for a long time marked by no special incident. But one circumstance happened which showed the wonderful dexterity of Ned Land and proved what confidence we might place in him. The 30th of June the frigate spoke some American whalers, from whom we learned that they knew nothing about the narwhal. But one of them, the captain of the Monroe, knowing that Ned Land had shipped on board the Abraham Lincoln, begged for his help in chasing a whale they had in sight. Commander Farragut, desirous of seeing Ned Land at work, gave him permission to go on board the Monroe. And fate served our Canadian so well that, instead of one whale, he harpooned two with a double blow, striking one straight to the heart and catching the other after some minutes' pursuit. Decidedly, 
if the monster even had to do with Nedland's harpoon. I would not bet in its favour. The frigate skirted the southeast coast of America with great rapidity. The 3rd of July, we were at the opening of the Straits of Magellan, level with Cape Verges. But Commander Farragut would not take a torturous passage, but doubled Cape Horn. The ship's crew agreed with him, and certainly it was possible that they might meet the narwhal in this narrow pass. Many of the sailors affirmed that the monster could not pass there, that he was too big for that. The 6th of July, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the Abraham Lincoln, a fifteen miles to the south, doubled the solitary island, this lost rock at the extremity of the American continent, to which some Dutch sailors gave the name of their native town, Cape Horn. The course was taken towards the northwest, and the next day, the screw of the frigate was at last beating the waters of the Pacific. Keep your eyes open, called out the sailors, and they were opened widely, both eyes and glasses, a little dazzled, it is true, by the prospect of two thousand dollars, at not an instant's repose. Day and night they watched the surface of the ocean, and even like telepes, whose faculty of seeing in the darkness multiplies their chances a hundredfold, would have had enough to do to gain the prize. I myself, for whom money had no charms, was not the least attentive on board giving but few minutes to my meals, but a few hours to sleep, indifferent to either rain or sunshine. I did not leave the poop of the vessel. Now leaning on the netting of the forecastle, now on the taffrail, I devoured with eagerness the soft foam which whitened the sea as far as the eye could reach. And how often I have shared the emotion of the majority of the crew, when some capricious whale raised its black back above the waves. The poop of the vessel was crowded in a moment. The cabins poured forth a torrent of sailors and officers each with heaving breast and troubled eye, watching the course of the cetacean. I looked and looked, till I was nearly blind, whilst Concier, always phlegmatic, kept repeating 
in a calm voice. If, sir, you would not squint so much, you would see better. But vain excitement. The Abraham Lincoln checked its speed and made for the animal signaled. A simple whale, or common cachalot, which soon disappeared amidst a storm of excretion. But the weather was good. The voyage was being accomplished under the most favourable auspices. It was then that the bad season in Australia, the July of that zone corresponding to our January in Europe. But the sea was beautiful and easily scanned round a vast circumference. The 20th of July, the Tropic of Capricorn, was cut by a hundred and five degrees of longitude, and the 27th of the same month, we crossed the equator of the 110th meridian. This passed. The frigate took a more decided westerly direction and scoured the central waters of the Pacific. Commander Farragut thought, and with reason, that it was better to remain in deep water and keep clear of continents or islands, which the beast itself seemed to shun, perhaps because there was not enough water for him, suggested the greater part of the crew. The frigate passed at some distance from the Marcuses and the Sandwich Islands, crossed the Tropic of Cancer, and made for the China Seas. We were on the theatre of the last diversion of the monster, and, to say truth, we no longer lived on board. Hearts palpitated, fearfully preparing themselves for future incurable aneurysm. The entire ship's crew were undergoing a nervous excitement, of which I can give no idea. They could not eat. They could not sleep. Twenty times a day, a misconception or an optical illusion of some sailor seated on the taffrail would cause dreadful perspirations. And these emotions, twenty times repeated, kept us in a state of excitement so violent that a reaction was unavoidable. And truly, reaction soon showed itself. For three months, during which a day seemed an age, the Abraham Lincoln furrowed all the waters of the northern Pacific, running at Wales, making sharp deviations from her course, veering suddenly from one tack to another, stopping suddenly, putting on steam, and backing ever and anon 
at the risk of deranging her machinery. And not one point of the Japanese or American coast was left unexplored. The warmest partisans of the Enterprise now became its most ardent detractors. Reaction mounted from the crew to the captain himself, and certainly, had it not been for the resolute determination on the part of Captain Farragut, the frigate would have headed due southward. This useless search could not last much longer. The Abraham Lincoln had nothing to reproach herself with. She had done her best to succeed. Never had an American ship's crew shown more zeal or patience. Its failure could not be placed to their charge. There remained nothing but to return. This was represented to the commander. The sailors could not hide their discontent, and the service suffered. I will not say there was a mutiny on board, but after a reasonable period of obstinacy, Captain Farragut, as Columbus did, asked for three days' patience. If in three days the monster did not appear, the man at the helm should give three turns of the wheel, and the Abraham Lincoln would make for the European seas. This promise was made on the 2nd of November. It had the effect of rallying the ship's crew. The ocean was watched with renewed attention. Each one wished for a last glance in which to sum up his remembrance. Glasses were used with feverish activity. It was a grand defiance given to the giant narwhal, and he could scarcely fail to answer the summons and appear. Two days passed. The steam was at half pressure. A thousand schemes were tried to attract the attention and stimulate the apathy of the animal in case it should be met in those parts. Large quantities of bacon were trailed in the wake of the ship, to the great satisfaction, I must say, of the sharks. Small craft radiated in all directions round the Abraham Lincoln as she lay to, and did not leave a spot of the sea unexplored. But the night of the 4th of November arrived without the unveiling of this submarine mystery. The next day, the 5th of November, at twelve o'clock, the delay would, morally speaking, expire. After that time, Commander Farragut, faithful to his promise, would turn the course to the southeast 
and abandon forever the northern regions of the Pacific. The frigate was then in 31 degrees, 15 minutes north latitude, and 136 degrees, 42 minutes east longitude. The coast of Japan still remained less than 200 miles to the leeward. Night was approaching. They had just struck eight bells. Large clouds veiled the face of the moon. Then in its first quarter, the sea undulated peaceably under the stern of the vessel. At that moment, I was leaning forward on the starboard netting. Concier, standing near me, was looking straight before him. The crew perched in the ratlines, examined the horizon, which contracted and darkened by degrees. Officers with their night glasses scoured the growing darkness. Sometimes the ocean sparkled under the rays of the moon, which darted between two clouds. Then all trace of light was lost in the darkness. In looking at Concier, I could see he was undergoing a little of the general influence. At least I thought so. Perhaps for the first time his nerves vibrated to a sentiment of curiosity. Come, Concier, said I. This is the last chance of pocketing the two thousand dollars. May I be permitted to say, sir, replied Concier, that I never reckoned on getting the prize, and had the government of the Union offered a hundred thousand dollars, I would have been none the poorer. You are right, Concier. It is a foolish affair, after all, and one upon which we entered too lightly. What time lost, what useless emotions. We should have been back in France six months ago. In your little room, sir, replied Concier, and in your museum, sir, and I should have already classed all your fossils, sir, and the Babirusa would have been installed in its cage in the Jardin des Plantes, and have drawn all the curious people of the capital. As you say, Concier, I fancy we shall run a fair chance of being laughed at for our pains. That's tolerably certain, replied Concier quietly. I think they will make fun of you, sir. And, must I say it? Go on, my good friend. Well, sir, you will only get your desserts. 
indeed. When one has the honour of being a savant as you are, sir, one should not expose oneself to... Concier had not time to finish his compliment. In the midst of general silence, a voice had just been heard. It was the voice of Ned Land, shouting, Look out there, the very thing we are looking for, on our weather beam. <laughs> <laughs>